Well, church family, you may open your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 2. So we behold God's living word. That's page 553 in the Bible in the seat back in front of you. Most of us in the room know Michael Jackson, who was an American singer, songwriter, dubbed the king of pop, uh, was the most popular entertainer of his time, and he had the greatest album sales of any album ever with his album Thriller, uh, estimated uh, over 100 million copies sold worldwide. He had popularity, fame, amusement parks in his backyard, exotic pets, jets. He had it all, net worth of over $600 million. Towards the end of his life, he says this, I think all my success and fame, and I wanted it, he said, I wanted it because I wanted to be loved. That's all. That's the real truth. I wanted people to love me, truly love me, because I never really felt loved. He was searching before he overdosed in 2009. He never found that satisfaction that he was looking for. Uh, the book of Ecclesiastes summarizes humanity's attempt to find happiness outside of fellowship with God under the sun. The preacher, uh, who we believe to be Solomon, as we've discussed the last several weeks, is in the middle of his search for satisfaction, for happiness. What gain does he get for all of his toil under the sun? Last week, we considered how he sought happiness and satisfaction through wisdom and knowledge, yet it turned up empty for him because there wasn't enough human wisdom uh, or knowledge to apply it to find happiness in all of his pursuits. And in fact, towards the end of our passage last week, he said all of his pursuits, ultimately it increased his vexations, increased his sorrows. And the cure for the increase of sorrows is pleasure. And that's exactly what Solomon runs to this week. He's searching for satisfaction through pleasure. Verse 10, as was just beautifully read by our sister, says, whatever his eyes desired, he did not keep from them. Uh, this pursuit for pleasure is what we call today as hedonism. Simply means the pursuit of pleasure, self-indulgence, self-absorption, the pursuit of happiness. And as Americans, we understand that phrase, the pursuit of happiness. Blaise Pascal, a French philosopher, said this, all men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and others avoiding it is the same desire in both, attended from different views. The will never takes the least step but to this object. This is the motive of every action of every man, even of those who hang themselves. Man is constantly finding something to satisfy his soul. Uh, the main point for our passage today, just to sum it up is, and give us direction for our journey, is simply this. Searching for satisfaction through earthly pleasure will not satisfy you. Searching for satisfaction through pleasure will not satisfy you. Look with me in verse 1 as he introduces the search to us. He said, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself, but behold... This was also vanity. 
This is the preacher laying out this next test for himself. He, he told his heart, I want to test you with pleasure. Test here means he wants to learn the true nature or meaning of pleasure and whether or not it will satisfy him. So, so in a sense, pleasure itself is on trial with Solomon and whether or not it can hold up in a person's life. In our little passage today, there's four major categories that he is seeking pleasure in. Some, some break it down to six categories, others to two, but we're breaking it down to four. You, you might not be able to, to relate to pursuing pleasure in all of these categories, but my guess is one of, or two of these categories you'll be able to relate with. Uh, you'll be able to feel, it, 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 will, it will press upon you. Uh, these categories kind of plunge us into this exploration that he continues to go on. And then we're going to look at the outcomes of his search, and then towards the end, we're going to flip this whole thing upside down, and we're going to view it in a redemptive way. So that's kind of where we're going today. So the, the first place he pursues pleasure in, I've just categorized as fun. Look with me in verse 2. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. Recognize what he says there in verse 3. There's just a few days that we have in this life, and he's trying to figure out how he can spend them how he can have fun with them. What is the purpose of these? He brings forward two areas where he tried to hide these griefs and these vexations that had increased by having fun. And these two areas are laughter and pleasure. Uh, one, one preacher says that Solomon leaves the academy and he goes on to the comedy club uh, looking to find fulfillment in laughter and in comedy. Uh, he wants to see if laughter can carry the freight of life. Uh, who doesn't enjoy laughing though, right? We've searched for the same in the same area. I, I love movies, to be honest with you. I love to laugh. If you know me, you know that I love to laugh. Uh, I enjoy uh, clean, wholesome comedians. Uh, I remember 27 years ago, uh, embarrassingly enough, I, I remember the first time I saw Dumb and Dumber, I fell out of my chair laughing. I thought it was the pinnacle of humor. But laughter itself won't build out any true meaning in this life. And, and we see this because we see things used to make us laugh that might not make us laugh anymore. Like, like Dumb and Dumber. It's because it's fleeting. It's because we grow and develop. It's because the circumstances in our lives, they change. Laughter ultimately doesn't have a grip on being able to satisfy us in the biggest moments of our life. In fact, he says in the passage, he found laughter to be mad, meaning it was foolishness. 
The Guardian, which is a journal posted empirical data a few years ago, taking into account all of the entertainers in the world uh, and uh, singers and actors and comedians. And what they found is that comedians had, uh, on average, the shortest, saddest lives. Maybe Richard Pryor comes to mind. Maybe Robin Williams comes to mind. I'm not saying at all that laughter is a bad thing. In fact, Proverbs 17 says that laughter is the medicine to the soul. It's a wonderful thing. But this isn't what Solomon is saying here. He's, he isn't saying that laugh, laughter isn't enjoyable. Laughter is enjoyable. He'll, he'll go on later to say that. He's saying that laughter isn't enough. It doesn't have enough bolt to it to remove true pain or to provide true meaning. Uh, Laughter and comedy, it can distract us from our griefs and provide temporary escape from our sorrows or our stresses. But standing on its own, there is no gain in all of it for all the pain that we have. That means that a movie like Dumb and Dumber isn't able to support the weight of griefs when a loved one is dying in the bedside next to you. It just doesn't carry the freight or answer the question, where does a loved one go after one dies? It's not found there. Alistair Begg says, after the preacher leaves the comedy club, he heads to the bar. Look, look there in verse three, where he searched for pleasure. And he did so by pursuing it with wine. He uses wine to cheer his body. He wants to have fun and pleasure with the vine. The text doesn't seem to suggest that he's just living it up aimlessly. Look what it says there in verse three. He says that his wisdom is still guiding his heart. Uh, some commentaries uh, kind of differ on whether or not he, he used uh, wine as some social sophisticated connoisseur where he's trying to discover the beautiful taste of wine and enjoy wine, bringing gladness to his heart, or if he is laying hold of folly and enjoying wine to the nth degree by getting drunk. There, there's differences of opinions here. Either way, Uh, The end goal does not satisfy him. Uh, The scriptures discuss that alcohol can be of good use. We see this. We have to admit that. It says that in different places of the scripture. But we can also see that, that alcohol is bad. However Solomon used it, whether to simply enjoy the taste of it or if he's getting drunk, having his servants parade him around on their shoulders in his house, however he used it, The simple point is this, alcohol, substance, it will not satisfy the deep cravings of the human soul, the hole that we have in our hearts. Uh, Maybe it's uh, other things that you use to try to cheer your heart. Maybe it's food uh, or fitness or entertainment on your phone or TV shows, whatever pleasure you use to try to fill your heart, that thing in itself is unable to do what you want it to do. So we take these things in this life and we try to have fun with them, but we're looking for a result for it to produce, but it can never reach it. That's what Solomon's kind of, he's getting at here. I've I've used Tylenol my whole life. Uh, Anytime I have a a fever or body aches, I use Tylenol to suppress 
uh, my fever and to kind of numb my aches. And it's great. It makes me feel better. And sometimes it even tricks me into thinking that I am better. You guys know exactly what I'm talking about. And then in four hours, the medicine wears off and you have to attend to it again. You have to take it again. And you go back and back. It's a cycle. And pleasures, fun, we use them the same way. We, we can use laughter, partying, social life, uh, binge watching on Netflix to, uh, because we think it brings us rest, uh, gratification with the Dallas Cowboys. Whatever it is, uh, whatever it is, we have to admit that we use these things to satisfy something deep within us. What do you run to for fun? To, to numb the pain, to get through the day. Ask yourself that and, and then confess the answer to a friend and talk about it. We act as if pleasure sometimes can be these snack stations in the middle of the Sahara Desert where we go and we snack all we can and then we, we journey to the next snack station, the midst of difficulty in life. But that's not where Solomon found satisfaction. And so he, he kind of moves from the bar and he goes to the architectural and real estate firms to see if satisfaction can be found there. In verse four, he has the second pleasure, uh, pleasure, pleasurable pursuit, which is his achievements, what he has made. Look with me. I made great works, he said. I built houses and I planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees, he says. This brother built stuff. This brother had creative genius and wisdom that God had given him, and he essentially created and built a city within a city. It says in 1 Kings chapter 7 that it took 13 years just to build his house. And here in this passage, it said he built houses and then he made vineyards and gardens and parks and planted within them, get this, every kind of fruit tree. And then for the fruit trees, he made an irrigation system through his pools that watered the whole forest, which was his. Quite an amazing accomplishment with his hands. In a sense, and we see this, he attempted to remake for himself the Garden of Eden. Every kind of fruit tree, that phrase that you see there is the same phrase that's mentioned three times in the creation account. This brother was trying to build his way back to paradise, trying to recapture all the sorrows that were going on in his heart, knowing that if he could create this, this would bring satisfaction. And look who he did it for. It tells us in the passage, verses four, five, and six. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks. Verse six, I made myself pools from which to water the forest and the trees. Both the work and the product were for himself. Indulging all of his great architecture, the finest of agriculture, and the very best that engineering has to offer during his day for himself. A few years ago, I built Lauren a ladder. 
And I was really proud of it because it was the first time I had ever used my wood saw. I was so proud of it uh, when I finished, and the whole point of the ladder was to serve as a decorative purpose. And so you just throw like, uh, throws or blankets on the ladder, and it's just, for the past eight years, it's just sat in our master bedroom against the wall, right? Uh, the older this ladder gets, it's becoming weathered, and I have no idea how, because it's just in our living room, or excuse me, our master bedroom. The paint is chipping, and the ladder still doesn't lead anywhere. If you get up on the ladder, you're just a few feet higher than you were if you were on the floor. It doesn't go anywhere. And I think what the preacher discovered in all of his buildings, that they weren't able to satisfy. They actually didn't lead him or his soul anywhere. And this is the temptation of man. We build things to find fulfillment. We want to create things in our mind and we want to put them out and, and develop them. Uh, and, and those are good things. And we're gonna talk about this more next week, but the whole point is they don't satisfy. Uh, they, you cannot find identity in these things. They aren't able to carry the day for you from day to day because you always wanna build again or you always wanna remodel. Or there, there's never true satisfaction. Ultimately, every building that's ever built is destroyed. Every forest that is created catches fire. Every pool dries up. We're going to get into this, like I said, next week a little bit more. And then the, the third place he looks for satisfaction is in acquisitions. He, he goes pursuing pleasure through his own possessions. Look with me in verse 7. I bought male and female slaves and, and had slaves who were born in my house. I, I had great possessions of herds and flocks more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. The brother acquired many things for himself. He acquired male and female servants for himself. First Kings 4 tells us that he had 30,000 servants for himself. And all the children that were born of these servants, he got to keep according to Levitical law, Leviticus 25. And every day, 1 Kings 4 tells us that he fed all 30,000 of his servants. And he didn't just feed them bread and water once. He fed them three times a day with the finest foods and the choicest meats. 1 Kings 4 says, 10 fat oxen a day, 20 pasture-fed cattle. That, that, for all you hippies, that's not grain-fed cattle. That's pasture-fed cattle. 100 sheep, deer, gazelles, roebucks, fat and fowl. Every day he used 6,600 6, liters of flour for different breads. 12,000 liters of meal, like a, storm, like a cornstarch. Uh, flocks he owned, all the herds and the flocks that they feasted off of and fed all of the servants and all the people in his in his house, and also all the animals that they sacrificed. And it says there in verse seven that he had all, uh, or he had more than anybody in Jerusalem before him. He acquired much. And then the treasure. Oh, the treasure in verse eight. It's estimated that he received a billion dollars of gold a year in his possession. Silver, according to 2 Chronicles chapter 9, was as common as the rocks. 
And if you've ever been to Israel, all there is is rocks. It's estimated today, and not to mention that he had the treasure of kings and provinces also, as it says there. That means he was taxing people. He was gaining money from other kingdoms that surrounded him. He was acquiring great wealth. It's estimated that the net worth today would be between 2.1 and 2.7 trillion dollars. He's a multi-trillionaire. You ever heard of that comment? That's roughly 18 Elon Musks. That boy needs to sit down and take some notes. First King 10 which describes the king of Sheba who came and sought Solomon and wanted to see Solomon in all of his grandeur, who was a woman of wisdom, power, and wealth herself. When she saw Solomon's fleet and riches and his full operation, the scriptures say in 1 Kings 10 that her breath was taken away. She was overwhelmed by the grandeur of everything that Solomon had. The guy didn't have to do anything for himself. His every step was catered to. He had people, if he wanted to, to brush his teeth and to trim his nails, to massage his feet. But surely he was carried everywhere if you have that many servants, right? I mean, he had everything. Every time he had a hunger pain, he could satisfy it with a steak that's at the level of Albernay here in Dallas. Anytime he wanted and then he did the very same thing for all of his guests, rooms full of treasure, not even knowing what to spend his money on. He had it all, according to the wisdom of the world. I know we cannot relate to extravagance like this. I recognize that. But there is still this little lie that each of us feel and sense in our souls that a little bit more will satisfy us. A little bit higher salary, a little bit more respect, a little bit different ability or power to make decisions in the company that I'm working in. This is how the curse works. The curse makes us think that just a little bit more of what we already have is enough. That's how it works out within us. But we're always left wanting. Aren't you always left wanting? Possessions are one of the great temptations under the sun for us. And they're as vast as the fruit trees in Solomon's garden. They're everywhere. Be mindful of this. Be attentive to this. Because they're promising things that they cannot satisfy. And then the final place that he looks is in delights. Look with me in verse 8. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines. He describes the concubines as the delight of the sons of men. Uh, Solomon loved the arts and acquired for his own entertainment the very best singers, men and women. Can you imagine having men and women who are the very best at your disposal? I think it's incredible that we can download our favorite songs now and recall them whenever we want. He gets to call his favorite band in from the other room to satisfy his craving. This is, so he gets to hang backstage every night with the band, favorite singers, in his living room. He got them. They were his possessions. This is something that I know none of us can identify with. He sought pleasure, as you see there in the text, verse 8, through massive amounts of sex 
and sexual partners. First Kings chapter 11 talks about Solomon having 700 wives and 300 concubines. A, a concubine was a woman that belonged to a man for sexual pleasure. Solomon had a thousand women in his house. Y'all let that sink in. That's a big house. That's a lot of women. And there was his. Okay? He could be with another woman every night for nearly three years. He tried to find pleasure every night in different places. When it says he searched for satisfaction, he explored everything. Now, I'm, I'm gonna ask a question, and I, and I hope, congregation, beloved, that you would deeply consider it in your own heart. Don't run from the question, consider it. What do you want more of, as we're just kind of summarizing these four categories, what do you want more of because you think it's going to make you happy? Write it down and, and, and face it head on. Uh, that, that's really what Solomon here is is doing. He's searching for satisfaction. Uh, you might be looking at the party scene. You might be thinking that fun and alcohol and, and laughter is what you're looking for. And you've gotten into this, but nobody tells you at the onset of your search that you're going to be hugging the porcelain throne in the morning or that you're hungover and that there's no satisfaction there. Uh, you might be looking for it in things that you build or things that you can create. And these things can be good. Solomon's palace was marvelous. People mar marveled at it, but it was only destroyed later on when the Babylonians came in and raided Jerusalem. Do you look for satisfaction in money and wealth and some of the finest things that this world has to offer? Uh, do you look for it in delicious foods? Those foods ultimately digest. Uh, do, do you look for it in nice clothes or new sneakers or sneakers get holes in them? Threads pop out of your favorite jackets and sweaters. Where do you go looking for satisfaction? The reality is most of us in this room are from the middle class. And middle class folks, we are, we are very, very blessed. We're a abundantly blessed. We have access at our disposal to grocery options, uh, traveling, medical care that kings didn't have 100 years ago. And it still doesn't satisfy us. It doesn't mean we're not thankful for it, but it certainly doesn't satisfy us. Maybe you are searching for gratification through se sexual pleasure. Maybe you are pursuing it at every single turn and all the wrong places and it satisfies you for a moment but it leaves you empty. Are you someone who's looking for more sex? Are you looking to be gratified by the flesh in this specific way? Are you someone who, who runs to pornography? looking for gratification, the same type of gratification that Solomon is looking, there is a chance that there are people in this room who have had as many internet partners sexually through pornography, uh, people who don't even know your name as Solomon had in his own household looking for sexual gratification with women. The reality is we look for these things. We run to these things and we think that they're gonna satisfy us. We are no different than Solomon. 
Look at his discovery in verse nine. I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Solomon participated in all of this with wisdom accompanying him. See that in verse 9? He wasn't just aimlessly doing these things. He's wondering, genuinely searching, do these things satisfy the soul? Giving more intention, more likely than any of us in this room have given to these things. But verse 10 describes what type of uh, wisdom he was using. Do you remember the description we had last week that he was using earthly wisdom? He was making decisions based on what he saw And he didn't keep his eyes from them, which means he took them and tried to enjoy pleasure in that way. That's what Solomon was doing. But we've learned, for those of us who are in Christ, that we are to walk by faith and not by sight. There's a different type of wisdom that he's missing here in this text. Uh, But look at... Uh, And look at verse 10. He says, his heart found pleasure in all this toil. It's not that he didn't enjoy it. He enjoyed all these things that we are discussing. He enjoyed these four categories. It's one thing to go, "I I did that. That wasn't enjoyable. Therefore, it's not enjoyable. He's saying, no, these things are enjoyable. But in the end, the answer is that they're vanity. All the hard work that he put into this, this is what it produced. Uh, Look what it says in verse 11. It says he considered all his toil. This is pretty profound. And he found it all to be vanity, chasing after the wind. That little word considered means he looked intently at each of the works. That means he looked face to face at all of them, investigating them, objectively assessing them like a doctor reviewing uh, test results of a patient. And what he found in them was not enough to hold up in the meaning of this life. No enduring qualities were in these things. He's saying, essentially, don't go down this road. Uh, These things are fleeting. They're unsatisfying. It's like trying to make a meal with your fork and knife out of a puff of smoke. The preacher is relating to the reader's despair here. We can all be found in this. He's identifying with us in our own search, whether we realize it or not. He isn't giving us license to go and test these things ourselves. He's saying, you have tested these things. I have tested these things, and in the end... Their vanity. He's not giving us license to go take our fill in sin. Uh, He's trying to keep us from what we shouldn't be doing because in the end, they don't provide the answer. All they leave us with is heartache. Now, in our closing time, I want us to flip the script here. I want us to consider four things to redeem the passage that we just exposed. Uh, These four things... I hope you write down one or two of these things and you chew on them like a piece of meat and that you consider these things. 
Because this is perhaps the most important part of the sermon as we consider how do we rightly look at this passage? How do we rightly look at these pursuits that Solomon went through? The first is this, and there's just four of them. Remember, there is hope in the vanity. Remember, there is hope in the vanity. The grace of God keeps us from making these pursuits and these pleasures into little gods that we ultimately worship. Uh, Let the despair you feel as you pursue these things push you into the loving arms of our eternal God. Ecclesiastes chapter three, verse 11, and we're gonna get to this in two weeks. It says that God has put eternity in man's heart. He's placed eternity there, which means that only eternal things can satisfy the heart. That's why we're not satisfied with the things of this world. And this is done by his love so that we won't find satisfaction in this world. I love what C.S. Lewis says in his book, The Weight of Glory. Now, if we were made for heaven, the desire for our proper place will already be in us, but not yet attached to the true object. And we will even appear as the rival of that object, that object being the glorious God that we know, love, and serve. Don't let your sins, your pursuits of the things of this world keep you from being engulfed by the love of God. God has placed eternity in your heart and he has given you an eternal word with an eternal son. And this is what satisfies that giant, massive gap that we try to fill all the time by ourselves, And we can't, but he has made himself known to us. The second thing that I want us to consider is this. Don't regard God's purpose for the gifts. Don't, excuse me, don't disregard God's purpose for gifts and pleasure. God has given things mentioned in these four categories for us to enjoy. Uh, But we first must place them in a proper place with proper perspective. We are allowed to enjoy good food. We are allowed to enjoy intimacy with our spouses and enjoy parks and recreation. God is not some insufferable spoil sport or killjoy. He's the opposite He's the God who created sex, the the God who crafted vineyards and mountains and trees for us to enjoy. He doesn't harshly uh, regulate us. He's big-hearted, charitable towards us. Whose idea was it to create us naked in a garden and give us everything to eat? It wasn't yours. It was God's. We must admit that we and our souls desire the gifts more than we do the giver. Because according to our earthly wisdom, it looks better to us than something we can't see. And that is the reality. But these gifts that God gives to us are not to become gods themselves. They can't stand up under that type of pressure. They are to lead us like breadcrumbs ultimately to a feast and that feast is the enjoyable pleasure of God. They are to show us like little specks just trying to build out a much bigger picture for us. John Piper coined a term years ago 
called Christian hedonism. He flipped hedonism on its head and calls it Christian hedonism. And this is how he summarizes it. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. Uh, the Westminster uh, Catechism, the first question that, that man is to ask is this, what is the chief end of man? And the answer from Psalm 86 and Psalm 16, which is our call to worship passage, is this, man's chief end is to glorify God and, and enjoy him forever, to be satisfied in the living God. And that is only possible through a right relationship with God through Jesus Christ. It's, but you might be asking, well, Blair, how do we do this practically? Like, can you grind it down a little bit more? Well, like I said, enjoy what you eat, but let what you eat be a reminder that a greater feast is coming. Enjoy what you eat, but remember that it is God who has provided you the food and the ability to taste the food and to enjoy it. Enjoy making things with your hands and use it for God's purposes but consider that Christ is gonna make all things new with his hands. Laugh a lot, and I want, we want you to laugh a lot, a lot of joy, and consider God's goodness, but don't laugh at worldly things. Don't laugh at other people making fun of them. Laugh with joy because you know all your burdens are lifted because of the work of Christ. Enjoy creation. My family loves creation. We love hiking and biking and mountains and rivers and oceans. Enjoy these things. But the only way that you can make right sense of them is when you view them rightly. And rightly means that God is the one who made them. And God displays his glory and his power through them, according to Romans 1.20. Enjoy intimacy with your spouse a lot a ton, all the gratification you want with your spouse. But remember that nothing is compared to the intimacy that we have because of fellowship with God. Nothing can compare to that reconciled fellowship. We're talking here about a God-centered worldview. We're talking here about seeing the gifts of God rightly. Uh, St. Augustine says, you have, made for, uh, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds rest in you. The third thing I want you to consider today is this. Be brave and ponder your own death. Be brave and ponder your own death. Verse three of our passage says that we are only here a few days. Underline a few days. And all the toil and all the pleasure and all the things that we pursue for gratification ultimately, and ultimately lead each and every single person to a wood box or an urn. Right here at the front of this stage or in a church like it. That's what all of our toil produces. In the end, what we get is a box that we will be buried in. Think about your death. We are guilty of using pleasure to distract us from the reality of our own deaths. But here's what I would tell you this. I remember my pastor in North Carolina sharing the same thing. But thinking about our deaths present, prevents us from misusing temporal pleasures. Thinking about our deaths 
helps simple things become profound things because we have right perspective of who we actually are. Have you ever spoken with someone who has a terminal illness or is very sick? Someone who knows their fate yet belongs to Jesus Christ by faith? It, it's incredible. They're densely aware that all they have at the end of their life is Christ. It's all they have. And it's helpful for us who think that we're healthy and we're gonna live forever. It's helpful to put perspective into place for us. And it kind of sheds new light on what we think these pleasures and these pursuits can, can actually do for us. A comedian, he's not gonna be able to heal the sick. Wine's not gonna be able to reverse cancer. If you're the one who built the hospital, you might be... You might be dying in that same hospital. This is just the reality of life. And our flesh, I know, I can, I can see it. I'm like, I'm looking at you and you're like, don't talk about this. And I, and I feel that. And yet we have to. Because this rightly helps us understand what pleasure is and how wrongly we use it in this life. But there is life. And the fourth and final thing I want us to consider is this. We need to recognize that there is a greater king than Solomon. A greater king than Solomon. We found ourselves because of sin exiled from the garden and living in this wilderness under the sun, pursuing all these things, trying to get ourselves back into the garden. But the same garden that Solomon built with his own hands, he was a slave to because it didn't satisfy his soul. Y'all, sin is a big deal. We often don't think about sin because we're trying to fill our minds with pleasure. But sin keeps us from knowing God. It kills man and woman. It is a huge deal. And we need someone else who can bring us back from the wilderness into the garden. Because the garden is where God eternal dwells and he dwells with man. We need someone who can bring us back, someone who will carry us around, someone who will do all the work for us and his name is Jesus. We don't need 30,000 servants to serve us. We need one servant who seeks and saves the lost and his name is Jesus. You want to laugh and have joy Jesus says, my joy is the fullest joy. John 15, John 17. You're impressed that Solomon feeds thousands in a day? Our king feeds thousands in a day, but he does it only with five loaves and two fish. You want the finest meals in the land? Jesus said, I am the bread of life and the meal that I will give you will quench all your hunger pains. You desire wine to cheer your body? Jesus says, I am the true vine, in John 15. You thirsty from all your toil in this world? Jesus says, I will provide you living water and you will never thirst again. You think Solomon's house was cool? The one that took 13 years to build? Jesus has been building a kingdom and our houses for 2,000 years because he is making all things new with his perfect hands. You want a bunch of singers for entertainment? 
be entertained by the glory of God and sing praises to his name forever. The reality is God gave us fruit in the garden and we misused the gift. But a better food came, uh, flesh and blood, pointing to the bread and wine of Jesus that leads us back into fellowship with God forever. And Jesus came and he died and he raised to give us new life to forgive us of our sins, to reconcile us back into fellowship with him, to adopt us as sons and daughters, and we are no longer in exile. We no longer have to eat from the pleasures of this world in the same way we used to. And we have access to this kingdom, this king, by believing in him, by turning from our sin, by turning from the pleasures that we've sought, finding out there's not answer there, but there's an answer in him Turn to him if you haven't. And if you have, turn again to him. That's why we come back together. Remind ourselves of the gospel to turn back over and over to him. And he offers us an invitation to real meaning and satisfaction, to eternal life, eternal purpose. That's what Jesus does. And in so doing, we're actually wealthier than Solomon. You ever thought about that? All the grandeur of Solomon's kingdom it says in 1 Peter 1.18 that he ransomed us not with silver and gold that Solomon acquired, but he ransomed us by the precious blood of Jesus. And we don't have to turn back to those things anymore. The Lord is near to all who call upon him. This is, this is Psalm 145. To all who call upon him in truth. If you are in this room today and you are struggling and you've tried everything. You've even tried Christianity a little bit. And you cannot find satisfaction, Jesus says in Matthew 11. I will give you rest. I will take your burden upon my shoulders. And you don't have to pursue those things anymore. That's hope for us Christians. And I hope you're rejoicing in your heart. Because this is the truth that we get to stand on. There is one escape from these things, and his name is Christ.